Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. This is the word of God. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage, to Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to, said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they said to them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Here is the reading of God's word. Welcome. If you're visiting, we're working our way through Mark's gospel. And um, you visit on a day... Um, known in the scripture, well, traditionally is known as triumphal entry. The title of the message is The King. The King Enters Jerusalem. So before we begin, um, let's pray that the Lord will bless his word to us this morning. Lord, your word is truth. Truth that saves and sanctifies us so as we contemplate this pivotal moment in time, uh, we ask that you might stoop to the frailty of our understanding and our presumption of familiarity. That through the examination, Lord, we ask of this passage will come a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what his mission was. Amen. In 1902, a sociologist by the name of Charles Cooley coined the term, you may be familiar with this, the looking glass self. Looking glass is an, is an old term for mirror. He argued, and I quote, your identity is in fact not created by you nor is it created by others. It's not even created by how others perceive you. Cooley argues that our identity and self-esteem often comes from imagining how others perceive us, which prevents us from being brave, courageous, and differentiated because we're always trying to work people over to posture them in such a way that they think well of us. Or we anticipate that they think well of us, so we can therefore think well of ourselves. And sometimes we go so far as to you know, embellish or invent scenarios or accomplishments or experience so as to intensify those perceptions. But, in order to maintain perceptions, we discard bravery or courage. That is the failure of moral nerve. Jesus Christ was the only person entirely immune from the looking glass self. He was never controlled by the imagined perceptions of men. He was never governed by the demands or expectations of the multitude, let alone their misconstrued messianic ideas. 
Jesus was governed by unwavering fortitude. The deep courage to enter Jerusalem as he does here in this text and to depart Jerusalem as he does in this text. At his most celebrated time. Courage. Talk about courage. Unwavering courage. Jesus here has courage to be misinterpreted, betrayed, detested, treated like a common criminal, lifted up on a cross, crucified, abandoned, covered by darkness, crying out as the most forsaken of all. Depicting the undaunted courage of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the dread warrior. From Jeremiah the prophet, who says, the Lord who is with me as a dread warrior who fights for his people, for my enemies will not overcome me. He is God's dread warrior. This is the final stretch of the passion of Jesus, who is the Christ, son of the living God. We've been looking at Mark for over a year now. This is his final week, and this event is the winding down of the clock before he succumbs to death. Death on a cross. The final week of the incarnate Lord Jesus' life, beginning on what is traditionally known as Palm Sunday the triumphal entry. And we'll conclude on what we know as Easter Sunday with his resurrection from the dead, the watershed moment of redemptive history. Don't miss it. Don't think that you're familiar with it so that you need not listen. This final week is so significant that Mark dedicates one-third of his gospel to this one week. One-third of the gospel. The four gospels together, beloved, total 89 chapters, 30 of which are dedicated to this final week of the Lord's life. Pretty significant. Highlighting just how important this week is in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of which centers on the sin-bearing death of the sinless Son of God. So Jesus has been journeying from Galilee with his disciples. He's picked up groups of people, traveling pilgrims, moving towards Jerusalem for Passover week. And he, as we know, has set his face like a flint, turning not to the right, nor to the left. And here as they enter in is the most significant feast on the Jewish calendar, which we gather Jews from out the Roman Empire, from throughout the land. And this is the feast of Passover. That is the celebration of their freedom from Egyptian slavery and the great exodus, the miraculous exodus from Egypt, the Passover. The Israelites were instructed before the death angel passed over the homes and the eldest of each home, whether you were Jew or Egyptian, would be slaughtered, would be put to death without blood on the doorposts and lentil. The Jews slaughtered a spotless lamb and they painted the blood of that spotless lamb on the door so that when God and his judgment came about, he would pass over their homes. They were secured by the blood on the door. This is the Passover feast. And here now, Jesus is ascending up to Jerusalem with a deliberate pace and purpose, going up. Not to be made a king. He's going up 
as the king. He is the king. Here he comes as servant king. A suffering servant king. To give his life for his enemies. To give his life for forgiveness. So Jesus, he's, he's leading his disciples not to war. He's leading them to witness The Lord Jesus Christ, he did not come to alienate. He came to reconcile. He did not come to condemn, but to save. Not in self-serving pride, but in humility and lowliness comes the Son of the Most High. So the scene shifts from last week, we were in Jericho, to this area in Jerusalem After Jesus and his disciples covered the 18 miles from the area of Jericho, there was old Jericho and new Jericho, you'll recall from our study last week, and they ascended this 2,600-foot climb from Jericho up to Jerusalem. So this now is the last leg of the long journey to Jerusalem. Now they are just two miles outside of the city. So we pick up. In verse 1, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany and the Mount of Olives, and let's stop there, Um, Bethany was where the good friends of Jesus lived, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. This was a place where he was able to, to rest. This is a place of solace for our Lord Jesus Christ in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And it was in Bethany that he recently raised Lazarus from the dead. Okay, we're talking four days in the grave dead. Wasn't long ago. Remember, Jesus was out. They called for him. He waited. He says, this sickness isn't unto death. Well, he died. What did Jesus mean? He meant he's gonna raise him up again. And he did. So there's a buzz. There's a buzz in Jerusalem at the time. When Jesus rolls into town, word goes out to the city, and people from within the city come out of the city towards Bethany to see Jesus and Lazarus, who he had raised from the dead. And the Pharisees sought to kill not only Jesus, but Lazarus, because on account of Lazarus, more and more people were believing in Jesus. Such is the way of man, left to himself. We want to slaughter Jesus. We want to shut him up. We don't want to hear from him. We don't want his conviction. We want it put to death. Amen. But by the grace of God, there go I. Now, it's the Mount of Olives, notice. Um, That was the peak of a two-mile ridge running north and south, just east of the Kidron Valley. And that is where in just two days, Jesus will give what is known as his Olivet Discourse, that great mighty sermon foretelling the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the age. This is where he'll give that message. And it's also there, from there, that he will ascend in a cloud of glory in Acts chapter 1. From this, the Mount of Olives. So here, while they're here, they're at this place. Jesus sends uh, two of his disciples on an errand that covers seven verses, okay? Two-thirds of the text are given to borrowing a donkey. An arrangement for the loan of a beast of burden. Verse one. Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. Now, Jesus, he's made it a habit, as you know, um, 
to call his disciples, and he, whenever he sends them out, he sends them out two by two. That's always very wise. It's very wise. And here they go, two, two of them were sent on a very specific errand. This, this was prearranged by our Lord. Every single event down to the betrayal of Christ by Judas was foreordained by God. This is foreordained by God. Now, Jesus either arranged this with the owner of the animal to do this, or this is an expression of the Lord's omniscience. One or the other, Jesus knew that the animal would be there. He sends them out. You find a colt, untie it, bring it. And if they ask, what are you doing? You say, the Lord has need, it's, and it's this, of this particular animal. This one. Now, many commentators suggest that uh, this was a kind of secret password of Jesus to friends. And, you know, it may be. And, and, and if indeed that is the case, it remains the password for all of Jesus' friends. Okay? That is to say that this is the acid test of my attitude for the possessions that I have. Are they up for use of the Lord? Are they available for his use? A little application. Now, the reason that two-thirds of this passage are given to coordinating the loan of a donkey um, goes back several hundred years to the prophet Zechariah, from which I read earlier in the service, who prophesied of a day of a day when God would break into time for his people and abolish the yoke of their oppressors. That was the promise. And, and set his people free, free through, through a uh, blood covenant. They would be set free. This is the prophecy. This is the promise. The sign of which will be the arrival of a great and ultimate king entering the city in a particular and very unique way. Look at Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, verse 9, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, certainly, 1 Kings 1.33 would be in mind of this prophet, where long ago, we read that Solomon, at his anointing and coronation, entered into Jerusalem, not on a stallion, he wasn't being pulled by a chariot, but he came in on a donkey, actually his father David's donkey, David, the king. So Zechariah prophesies that God's future king will do something very similar. This future king will ride in in this manner to break the yoke of our oppressors, says the prophet, and set before us a new and ultimate blood covenant through which he will save us from our greatest enemies who harm us. Greatest enemies? Sin, death. Sin and death. Those are your greatest enemies. Do you know that? Do you know that this morning? You will die and you will die on time. It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. You'll either be judged because of your sins or you'll enter into glory by way of the one who bore that judgment in your place. Condemned he stood. It's one or the other. Notice when they arrive at Bethphage, things are exactly, go figure, go figure, exactly as Jesus described. They went away and found a colt tied at a door outside the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? What would you say if someone were getting in your car when you go out in the parking lot? What would you say? What are you doing getting in my car? They got a Slim Jim. What are you doing? 
What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus said, and they let them go. Of course. Verse 7, and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. That is a makeshift saddle. A makeshift saddle here on this colt. The disciples finding a young colt never before ridden, never before ridden, is of great significance. Very important. Any animal used for a sacred purpose must never have been used in its ordinary role. The animal, this beast of burden, was to be set aside for special usage. You can read about it this afternoon when you go home and open your Bible. You can look at Numbers 19 and you can look at Deuteronomy 21, verse 3. But in choosing this animal in this way, Jesus here is applying and fulfilling messianic promises to himself. One passage that comes to mind is the oracle of Judah. Look at it. Genesis 49, in which Jacob tells his sons that through a descendant of Judah, verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal, notice this, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he was washed, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Jacob, the father, who, who prays for his boys here, prophesies that it will be someone from the tribe of Judah who will tether his young colt in preparation to shed blood for the remission of sins in the manner of a priest. In the manner of a priest who provided the sacrifice on behalf of the people. So the very act of untying the colt is itself, beloved, a messianic sign. Here he is. Here he is. Now, Matthew 21 tells us that it was a donkey and her colt. Okay, Matthew's account, a donkey and her colt were, were, colt were brought to Jesus, both. And we understand why when we read on in the account, right? Large crowds gather in front, large crowds behind. And again, John tells us that when, you know, having raised Lazarus from the dead, great crowds came out from Jerusalem. So you got crowds from Jerusalem. You have the crowd of pilgrims that traveled with Jesus. Remember, he healed blind Bartimaeus. There were pilgrims with him. So you got a group in the front, a group in the back, and all of this chaos. Think about a young colt. How would the young colt react? Nervously. So here, God in his providence, according to his sovereignty, unties not only the colt, but the mother of the colt to comfort the colt. But more comfort than the mother's colt is the one who's on the back of the colt, the king of peace. Peace, an unbroken colt with the Lord of glory on its back for the last two miles into Jerusalem. Verse eight, so here they go. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Notice his entrance is bold, courageous, and deliberate. He is the king, and this is the time. Here he is. He enters in. And what a contrast, amen? What has Jesus been telling those who rightly recognize him thus far? Remember the demons? Every time a demon-possessed person saw Jesus coming, what'd they cry out? 
We know who you are, the Christ, the son of the living God. What did Jesus say? Zip it. Shush. You ever been shushed? He shushes the demons. When he heals someone and he tells them, be quiet, don't tell anyone. Peter's great confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He sternly warned them to tell no one. Now he's being very deliberate. This is a deliberate act. The crowd knows what he's doing. They recognize it. So the reason that they spread out their cloaks and cut down palm branches to wave in the air is because the king is entering Jerusalem. Now, they don't rightly understand what all is going on. We'll see that. But this is a deliberate act of the Lord, and they welcome him as king, not as some common rabbi. It wouldn't be uncommon for a rabbi to ride into town, actually. So they spread out their cloaks on Jesus' path, which recalls a royal salute given to Jehu in 2 Kings. They did the same thing. They laid laid their cloaks out on the steps, and he rode in on top of those cloaks. This is like laying out the red carpet for a dignitary. That's what they're doing. So the raising of palm branches, that recalls the dedication of the temple back in 167 BC under Judas Maccabeus. The celebration of his heroic leadership that commenced the celebration known as um, the Feast of Lights, otherwise known as Hanukkah. And then in 141 BC, Simon Maccabee, who who drove out the forces of, of Syrian armies, was hailed with music and the waving of palm branches. So here, from that point in Jewish history, the palm branch became a sign of military triumph. See the picture? See the celebration? You see the people? You hear the people? You see the cult? And then they start singing an old song, a hymn, a messianic psalm. Notice, they shout out loud, Psalm 118, from Psalm 118. Now, Israel, remember, was an oral culture. They they would memorize things. They would have had this psalm memorized from the time that they were children. They memorized things like we memorize rock and roll songs. We're not quite as sanctified as they were in that regard. So they would memorize psalms. So one, Psalm 118 are words of hope that God is about to do something new. So he's riding in. There's crowds in front, crowds in back, hailing him, waving palm branches, laying out their cloaks, and they cry out, Hosanna, which means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So for hundreds of years, hundreds of years, the people waited for the peace associated with salvation, freedom. You know what they're thinking? They're thinking, this is our time. This is the moment. The second exodus is about to happen. Our king is here. It's no coincidence that it's Passover. This is the second exodus. Hosanna, son of David. He'll be greater than David. He will restore our dignity. He will cast out our enemies. He'll break the yoke that's around our throats. Here he is. Hmm. Finally. Israel says a tangible salvation. Finally, freedom from our foes. Interesting. You see, their idea of Messiah is that God comes in obvious success. Their idea of freedom, their idea of Messiah is that God comes in obvious success. We often associate the purposes of God 
do we not? Solely with paths of success. Do you see the purposes of God only when there's success in your life? Do you, do you see the purposes of God solely when you're on paths of success in this life? Oftentimes we do. We should shake our heads no, but oftentimes we do. Christians will say, I'm going through a turbulent, painful trial. I must be outside the will of God. Are you sure? I know bitter Christians. Bitter unbelievers are one thing. Bitter Christians have got to be the worst. Who's more miserable than a bitter Christian? Right? Why? Because you're a Christian, which means you have the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit and you're bitter and you're unforgiving, you grieve the Spirit who is holy. Some people can trace their bitterness back to unmet expectations in this life. Ultimately, in the back of their mind, they're blaming God for lacking paths of success. We have to be mindful of this, amen? Now, the thought that God always only shows success on the path of success, for Israel anyway, was because of the notions they had as regards kingship, okay? The notions that they had historically in their mind as regards kingship, which is present throughout the Old Testament. And ultimately, beloved, is what will occur at his second coming. New heaven, new earth, where there's no more pain, there's no more tears, there's no more sorrow, there's no more suffering, but not until then. Who paved the way? The suffering servant. The suffering servant. Can you say that? Kids, kids, children, say the suffering servant. Children, say the suffering servant. Who's the suffering servant? Jesus. Amen, young man. Amen. Jesus. They did not anticipate kingship that would include sacrifice and suffering. It was nowhere in their wheelhouse. So Jesus is courageously going up to Jerusalem, knowing all along the way that the crowds celebrating and clamoring around him had a misguided understanding of who he is and what he came to do. Do we see it? They did not. This is courage breaking the looking glass self theory Jesus shatters it. He shatters it. Knowing how others perceive him, he still moves forward courageously to reveal his true identity unbeknownst to them at this point. They have not a clue. They want... Pax Israelia, the peace of Israel. So he arrives on a donkey, a sign of peace. Had he arrived on a stallion, that would have been a declaration of war. They understood that this was an appeal to bring about the promised age of salvation, but they only saw salvation from a political viewpoint, not spiritual. They missed it. I mean, no doubt, no, they chanted these words. This is what God is doing. Hosanna, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The king of peace arrives, beloved, not to make war, but to provide peace. What kind of peace? Peace with God. Because every sinner is at war with God. This is what Paul declares, Romans chapter one. Therefore, therefore, since we have been justified, declared free from all blame by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the peace he came to bring. We're glad for that, amen? You know God loves, you know when God looks at you because you're in Christ, he cherishes you? Did you know that? Do you, you know that because you're in, Christ, you're in union with God through Christ, when he looks at you, he, he sees Jesus. You say, man, you don't know me very well, nor, nor do you know me very well. I know who the man in the mirror is, but positionally, because I'm in Christ, he sees Jesus when he looks at me. Can you believe it? You'll say, no, I don't. <laughs> Apply it to yourselves if you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you're at war with God and he's at war with you right now. He came to provide lasting peace. So in their ignorance, they make the right proclamation but for all the wrong reasons. We see it? So Jesus enters. He rides into town in great triumph. Multitudes are singing this messianic song. It's preparation for Passover. So what would we naturally do? You got to strike while the iron's hot, man. That's what you do. Not Jesus. This is the courage that breaks the looking glass self to move forward courageously. Verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem, notice, and he went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. What kind of political move is that? Bethany? Bethany? Wasn't there a leper colony there? What are you going to do there? So this messianic celebration ends almost as suddenly as it began. What a blasé finish. Talk about being anticlimactic. An anticlimactic moment. Climactic. Is that the word? Anticlimactic. Thank you, lawyer. <laughs> What a quick ending to a coronation, amen? He departs and goes back to Bethany. Okay, but let us remember who's in control of all this, amen? He is. He enters the city of kings as the king of kings, and he departs. He deviates, you see, this is courage, he deviates from all their earthly expectations, the expectations that surrounded him by the people of whom we're intimidated and we want to impress. Not Jesus. He knows exactly what he's doing. And what he does will provoke the bitter hatred and the rage of his enemies. As one commentator refers to it, an almost suicidal mission. And I say, you're right. It is. Why did Jesus say, I lay down my own life. I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. And I have the power to raise it up again. Because he's God. Who's Jesus, kids? Savior. Lord. And he, he's, he's God. Amen? He's God Almighty. Amen, children? Now, we'll see next week, Jesus walks into the temple. He's casing the joint. He's looking around. 
He's going to come back and he's going to judge it. He's going to come back and judge the temple. He's going to cause all kinds of commotion. There's another wise political move. That's a, there's a man pleaser for you. You see this? Jesus never went, came to please men. He came to please his father. Shattered the looking glass self theory. Shattered it. His preaching becomes more hostile. He will directly confront the religious leaders of the day. He will openly criticize them and tell them that God's judgment is about to fall upon them. There's Dale Carnegie for you. Dale Carnegie, you know how to win friends and what's the name of it? Influence people, Jesus. Win friends and influence, no, I don't think so. He'll take the Passover feast and, ch and change its entire meaning, right? The Passover feast, the great exodus, it's no longer about an old exodus. It's not about a new military exodus. It's about an exodus from sin and death. This represents my body and blood, he says. That's what he'll do this week. Jesus knows all too well also, beloved, that this great Hallel Psalm, Psalm 118, that hallelujah chorus includes some very sour notes. Right? Verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our sight. I don't think they sung that part that day. If they did, they did so ignorantly. Jesus knows all too well, Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've, we've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Rejection was not on the minds of these people on this day. Not on their radar. So his triumphal entry was an entry of triumph, beloved, but towards what? His humility, his passion, the cross, his passion. Because you see, his real coronation didn't come on this day. His real coronation would come by way of a crown of thorns, dying, raising, and ascending. And if you want to read about his real coronation, you can go home this afternoon and open to Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 to 18. That's his real coronation. This king who entered Jerusalem in humility has risen victoriously and will return triumphantly. Do we know this? Make sure you know this. Because at his second coming, Jesus will arrive as the sovereign and he won't be riding on a donkey's colt. He's coming on a white charger. And if you want to read the most bloody book in the Bible, War, Hava, Judgment, go read Revelation 19 this afternoon because that's when he comes back on a white horse coming out of heaven followed by armies of heavenly agents also on white horses clothed in white unleashing the judgment of heaven upon this earth. He will strike down the nations, the scripture says, and tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, destroying the ungodly in massive judgment. All Christ rejectors will be slaughtered. And if you're not part of the great supper of the Lamb, believer, there's another supper in Revelation 19. It's where scavenger birds, birds gouge kings and princes 
paupers, all unbelievers will be judged. That's the picture. You like the Bible? You like the whole Bible? Don't forget that's what he suffered. That's what he suffered. He suffered God's wrath on the cross and he rides in triumphantly towards the cross. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus fulfilled prophecy in the name of the Lord. This is the watershed moment of redemptive history. It would be a tragedy for you to neglect it. Tragedy. Reject him if you will, but reject him to your own peril. Well, this is real loving. If you're an unbeliever, that's how much I love you. Don't leave out this part of the Bible, friends. Amen? Because on that day, unbelievers will be crying out for the mountains and the boulders to fall on them because they do not want to taste the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath that the Lamb took upon himself. All who reject him will bear that wrath. Make no mistake about it. This is the gospel. This is the bad news. The good news is he rode in triumphantly. Isn't it beautiful? Gorgeous. So Jesus, notice, departed not only the city of Jerusalem, he departed everyone's expectations in order to be, in order to be not whom they wanted. Don't miss that but who they needed, Savior. He's the only one. He's the only one. So we see courage in his entry. We see courage in his departure, hailing him, Hosanna, and he leaves. He walks in and looks at the temple. And let me tell you this, he's looking around like this. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. I'll be back tomorrow and look out. That'll be next week. And it's exciting. Jesus rode into Jerusalem to go to the cross to conquer your greatest enemies. Enemy number one, as I close, enemy number one is the guilt that you bear as a sinner. And if you don't think you're a sinner, you're a fool. Because you are. Proof, you're gonna die. The wages of sin is death. You've earned your, you've earned your wage. You will die. Enemy number one. Enemy number two is the punishment that is due to you as a sinner. Those two enemies are the largest looming enemies any man or woman will ever face. And this king took those enemies upon himself, ultimately destroying them. And he rode in victoriously and destroyed everybody's expectations of him. The ultimate enemy he destroys, what? By way of his resurrection is death. Death. You don't have to fear death if these first two enemies are covered. And they can only be covered by the king who rode in to Jerusalem in humility. And you'll never taste death, for to be absent from the body is to be present with this Lord. You got that? Present with the Lord. You won't taste death. In other words, believer, you won't go through some dark, cold chasm of like, oh, I'm spitting in death. No, with the Lord in glory, now. You'll close your eyes here and you'll open them and you'll see the glory of this one, the king. Isn't it great? So Jesus rides in on this little donkey as the dread warrior, the king, 
the conquering king, coming to do battle, not as an earthly king, but right here, he boldly enters this road so as to shed his blood and destroy these enemies for you. That's why he comes. That's why he came. That's why he rode in like this, determined to spare you, to save you from God, God's wrath for God's glory, to share in his glory. So again, you're saved from God, by God, for God, and you get to share in his glory if you're in Christ. God came to save you from God. Beautiful, humble, mounted on a donkey's colt comes the king of kings. So to close, for all of our weaknesses, all of our careless concern for living by sight and not by faith, for all our anxieties about imagining how others perceive us, and then we play all these games, and we walk around frightened, fearful. This one came bravely, courageously for God's glory. And guess what? Because of Christ's inflexible courage, guess what, weakling? And I'm speaking to myself, looking glass self. Because of his inflexible courage, that inflexible courage counts for you. For you. For you. For you. In Christ. Amen? So that's why we can just repent of our fear of men and rest in this one, the king. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He comes lowly, riding on a donkey's colt, bringing you peace with God. So let us, beloved, let us find our refuge, strength, courage, and identity in this one, the fearless one. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the courage, the inflexible courage of our King Jesus, who came unashamedly and rode in victoriously that day and destroyed all of the expectations of men to give them not what they wanted, but what they needed, a sovereign Savior, your Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Bless this, your word, to the hearts of your people and bring those who don't believe from their deathbed, raise them up and give them, we pray, everlasting life. Amen.